The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, the big change to the $10 bill that no one is talking about yet, and an update from National Industries for the Blind. Welcome to ACB Reports for July 2013. By now, most listeners to ACB Reports have probably heard about the intent to place a woman's picture on the forthcoming newly designed $10 bill. However, there's something else about this bill that is more important for people who are blind or visually impaired. This article, which appeared in the Washington Post on Friday, June 19th, explains. The big change to the new $10 bill that no one's talking about. A special feel for the new $10 bill by Lan Q. Mew. The announcement that a woman will grace the redesigned $10 bill is overshadowing what could be an equally historic change in the way America's money feels. The new $10 note is the first slated to have raised elements that will help the blind and visually impaired distinguish between denominations, an accommodation for which disability rights groups have been fighting for decades. The Treasury Department was sued in 2002 over the problem and lost its case after six years of legal wrangling. It has taken even longer to turn the idea into a reality. Frankly, I applaud the fact that they're going to put a woman on the front design, said Jeff Levitke, the attorney who represented the American Council of the Blind in its case against Treasury. I would hope that they would keep their promise and keep to their stated intention of also putting the tactile features on the bill. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew told reporters that tailoring the $10 bill to the blind was in keeping with the new design's theme of democracy, but he did not specify exactly how the currency would change. Levitke said his group has also not received details. The new note is slated to be unveiled in 2020. In other countries, money comes in a rainbow of colors and a variety of sizes and textures. In Australia, each denomination is a different length and features large, bold numerals and high-contrast color. Hong Kong's currency incorporates Braille at the bottom of every note. The euro has raised print that is easy to feel. But U.S. currency is almost uniquely uniform. All of the paper bills are the same size and have the same weight and texture. That makes them nearly indistinguishable to the touch and impossible to tell apart without the ability to see. There's no way to distinguish a one from a hundred or anything in between, said Melanie Brunson, executive director of the American Council of the Blind. You are fairly dependent on the good graces of anyone you are doing a financial transaction with, to be honest. Many of the blind have developed workarounds one of the simplest is folding their bills. One bills stay flat. Five bills are folded lengthwise. Ten bills by width. And twenty bills by length and width. But the system breaks down when someone receives money, say, as change after a purchase. The advent of debit and credit cards has helped alleviate the problem, 
but the visually impaired have little ability to ensure that they are charged the correct amount. New electronic currency readers scan paper money for the blind, but the process can still be frustratingly slow. For a lot of transactions, there's a need for cash, Levitky said. There's a lot of reasons for why cash is still king. In 1973, Congress passed the Rehabilitation Act, which required the federal government to ensure that the programs and activities it funds are accessible to people with disabilities. That prompted the American Council of the Blind to begin lobbying Treasury to change the nation's currency. But after failing to make headway, the group finally filed suit in 2002 and won the case in 2008. Three years later, then-Treasury Secretary Timothy Gettner approved the changes to currency that would be added to the next bill redesign. A raised feature, high contrast numbers, and free currency readers for the visually impaired. In 2013, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing released a detailed plan of action. The proposed timeline called for officials to choose which elements to add by December 2013 and select the materials early this year. But the Bureau of Engraving and Printing said no decisions have been made. We haven't settled on an actual image, what type of shape it will take. Spokeswoman Linda Washington said, this is a very fluid timeline. The drawn out process is frustrating advocates for the blind. And Levitky said he is worried the government will not be able to meet the 2020 deadline. The government knows they have to do this, he said, but there's been a lot of bureaucratic foot dragging going on. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Attendees of this year's ACB Legislative Seminar had the opportunity to learn more about National Industries for the Blind. This month, ACB Reports brings that presentation, which was introduced by ACB's Eric Bridges. Well, our last presentation of the day um, deals with an organization that ACB's had a, a very long-standing, good uh, bit of collaboration with for many, many years. And uh, quite frankly, a lot of that uh, stems from an individual who was a longtime member and leader in ACB, Pat Beattie, who worked for National Industries for the Blind for 20 years or something like that. So I wanted to welcome them back uh, to talk a bit about some of the policy issues and other challenges that NIB and its affiliates face and are dealing with um, as employers of, of people who are blind, but also who function on a day-to-day -day basis as, as government contractors. There's a, there's a lot going on from a sort of a contracting standpoint and also from a disability policy standpoint. I think they have a lot to share here. So it's my pleasure to welcome the president and CEO of NIB, Kevin Lynch. Kevin. Thank you, Eric. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I have to say, it's, it's really a pleasure to come before the ACB. I always enjoy that. And uh, I'm really excited to see the number of members that are here to uh, participate this week uh, with your activities up on the Hill. 
The uh, last few years have been very difficult for our associated agencies, and we've been challenged in carrying out our mission to create, sustain, and improve employment for people who are blind. While many of our agencies are working to diversify their lines of business, the bulk of our manufacturing and service work is still done with the federal government through the Ability One program. I think you probably know well all the challenges that we face here in Washington, D.C. over the last couple of years. The federal budget process is broken down with the so-called regular order not being very regular any longer. <laughs> and on top of all of that, then came sequestration, that emergency tool Congress would only use when all negotiations and deal-making failed. Remember when they said that was never going to happen? Well, you know that how that ended. The emergency won't really have to use a tool became law and has really challenged our program over the past few years. When you layer on top of that some of the significant challenges we've had in working with an important and longtime valued partner in government, the General Services Administration, or GSA, our program has done some very important business with GSA over the past several decades. But times here in Washington have changed. GSA is under a lot of pressure to save taxpayer dollars, and this has led to some major changes in federal procurement and acquisition that has resulted in a race to what we call the bottom, searching for the cheapest price on products and services for the federal agencies. We continue to have major ongoing challenges with GSA and their authorized distributors, the commercial contractors. And what we've seen too much too often is non-compliance with the law that authorizes our program. The Javits-Wagner O'Day Act, or what most of you will recognize as the JWOD Act. And also, by the way, I understand ACB is experiencing some difficulties with GSA and its non-compliance with Section 508. So I guess in some ways we share the pain. Well, over the past few years, we've had declining sales and we've had agencies having to lay off several hundred employees, including people who are blind. This was a very difficult period for our agencies and for those employees. Reduced hours, temporary and sometimes permanent layoffs. This is financially and emotionally challenging for all of our agency employees, but especially for the individuals who are blind. At this time, ACB leadership was also very attuned to what was happening in our program and the trials facing our agencies around the country. In the summer of 2013, you adopted a resolution that challenged NIB and its agencies to step up our game and push back against GSA, Congress, and to better communicate the impact of sequestration and other dysfunctions in our nation's capital and what effect it was having on the lives of people who were blind. Well, I can tell you we did just that. We took our story to the media and to lawmakers on Capitol Hill, and I gotta tell you, frankly, we haven't stopped telling our story and there's a lot more to tell. In fact, we've been more engaged with U.S. Congress than any other time I can remember in all my years of being involved with the Ability One program. Last fall, we convinced over 60 members in the U.S. House of Representatives to sign a letter to GSA Administrator challenging that agency on its lack of compliance with the Ability One program and its inability to rein in authorized contractors who repeatedly break the law and cause harm to employment for people who are blind. And the efforts of NIB and its agencies to engage Congress more aggressively are really paying off. Now we have a strong new champion in, Ch in Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, 
who not only visited three of our New York agencies in the second half of 2014, but who has also joined us in challenging GSA to get the program support of the JWAD Act and stop threatening jobs for New Yorkers who are blind. No one has spoken out more boldly in the U.S. Congress in recent memory on behalf of employees who are blind than Senator Chuck Schumer. While there seems to be a greater level of cooperation more recently with GSA staff, we also know our challenges have not been resolved and we continue to work through many different channels, including the media and Congress, in order to resolve these problems. Quite frankly, what we're very concerned about is the fact that GSA has established contracts with these commercial contractors and then will not oversee them to make sure that they are doing what they're supposed to do, and that is to follow the JWOD law. In addition to that, we're very concerned that GSA set up a contract with one of these commercial providers to operate a commercial walk-in brick-and-mortar store. And we know that the Ability One products are not carried in these stores. So we are continuing to um, press GSA to do the right thing. And what we're really looking at at this point in time is really having to to continue to up our involvement in that. And so you may be hearing a lot more in the upcoming weeks and months in regards to the media about that. I want to say thank you for challenging NIB and its agencies to more aggressively tell our story to the press and policymakers. And thank you, ACB, for sticking by NIB as a great ally in the cause to improve the lives of people who are blind. You continue to be a valued partner. Now, I'd like to change things up briefly and share some exciting things that are going on at NIB and our associated agencies. We continue to leverage accessible technology and work in areas such as our contract management closeout and Section 508 certification. And soon, we're going to be launching a new pilot program in information insurance. Our intent in all these technology areas is to produce more employment opportunities with a greater levels of pay and more opportunities in advancement. So it's not just a job, it's actually a career. We also have a new partnership with George Mason University that builds on an already strong business management training program, which we offer to eligible agency employees. Our Advocates for Leadership Employment program is currently working on to onboard a third group of employees, self-advocates if you will, that will help train to effectively communicate their own story, their agency story, and to talk about our overall, overall program with, with elected officials. And finally, we're promoting our nationwide network of capabilities to encourage corporations to source the requirements in the U.S. by piloting a program with Walmart and their Made in America program. All of these programs are aimed at providing enhanced training and employment opportunities with an eye toward upper mobility and we're thrilled at the progress we're making in these areas. On behalf of the NIB board, our leadership team, thank you for the chance to present this great news today, and thank you again for the partnership that we've had with ACB for so many years. I'll be happy to answer any questions later, but first, you have the opportunity to hear from Tony Stevens, NIB's public policy and advocacy manager on a couple of key policy issues. So thank you very much. My name is Tony Stevens. I manage public policy and advocacy for National Industries for the Blind. 
What I wanted to do for the next few minutes is talk to you about some of the larger issues that are in the background noise of what you're hearing in Washington right now around the larger issues facing people with disabilities, people who are blind, in addition to what you're going to be going to the Hill with for the low vision bill, uh, for the Medicare, and then also for the, the Cogswell-Macy Act, which are two things that, that we've supported and hope that you do very good tomorrow in, in pushing out those important messages. Because those two, in a sense, are, are still tied to employment, even ones about schools, we gotta get folks ready. And then as well, uh, the supplies aren't just for seniors, with the Medicare exclusion. Those impact a lot of folks who are on SSDI as well. So good luck with those issues tomorrow. Now what you're going to be possibly going up against though in the sense of the background on issues that are going on are some major issues that have been taking place into the last session of the 113th Congress as well as what you're going to actually be maybe even hearing some news about this week as we go into pretty much full steam ahead with appropriations for the 114th Congress. Now, some of you might have heard of WIA, the Workforce Innovation Act, or Workforce Investment Act, excuse me. That was, as many of you know, passed last year into what's called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, WIOA. We are awaiting regulations for that. They were supposed to come out in January, and as you heard during the lunch session, so much of the issues that we face and really rely on are those devils in the details, and that comes out through the regulation process. So while you're all up on Capitol Hill, the Department of Education and Department of Labor, are looking to try to get those regulations out. There's been a little bit of guidance already released around WIOA, but for those that don't know, that's the major legislation that deals with the Rehabilitation Act. And the Rehabilitation Act is the funding stream for vocational rehabilitation. So many of our agencies, our 94 associated agencies, rely on uh, VR services through major channeling and projects and partnerships and et cetera. Now, we're going to be looking forward to those regulations because there have been some changes uh, the Centers for Independent Living are now on Health and Human Services, as is the National Institute for Disability Research, Rehabilitation Research, so NIDR as it's called. That has a much longer name and it's now in HHS as well. Our hope is that NIDR will continue to support accessibility of the cloud and other issues they've worked on and that they're not just going to focus solely on healthcare related issues. In regards to other concerns with the VR, there's also going to be greater focus on the transition of youth that VR agencies are gonna to have to be relying on. And that's gonna change some of the dynamic on how VR dollars are sent. And we know now that Americans who are older are becoming more and more of that chunk of people who are legally blind through age-related disabilities like macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, et cetera. We know then that you know, we're, we wanna make sure that efforts and programs and things like that that meet those people in their 30s and their 40s are also gonna be supported. So we'll look forward to seeing those regulations come out hopefully sooner than later, because like I said, they were supposed to be on January 15th. But in Washington, we move at a very, very, very fast rate, as everybody knows. <laughs> now, in terms to what's going on on the Hill, and this is an issue that we have been taking up to the Hill for a number of years now with SSDI, Supplemental Security Disability Insurance, particularly around what's called the cash clip. Now, as many of you may know, SSDI and also SSI are a major, major support for many Americans who are blind or have other disabilities. Roughly 11 million Americans rely on some sort of supplemental income from Social Security. And that is, for many of them, a life support. It keeps them in their housing, but there are also a large number of those who are working. We have a lot of folks at our agencies who are working and on SSDI, helps in some sense provide, and if they're on SSI and get Medicaid, some of the law for people with multiple disabilities, it provides the support. So, we over the years have been pushing, and some of you 
know this issue well over the years about what's called the cash cliff and trying to align social security disability insurance where basically the idea is that you don't get a hatchet if you reach a certain amount of money and you lose everything. Right? We're trying to make it an incentive-based, you know, to try to put more incentives in the supplemental security and or no, the SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, so that it's like SSI, the supplemental that. It's a lot of acronyms we're dealing with at the end of the day. So our hope is then that we can try, and we've had some progress in, with the larger disability coalition. I'm on the Social Security Task Force with the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, which is one of the larger disability coalitions in the country, and we're based here in the Beltway. And we've had some progress in trying to craft a plan that has had, you know, to some degree, I was at a, at a hearing the other day, and the cash cliff was one of the issues that the Center for American Progress, which is the far left, uh, one of the think tanks, and then Cato, which is one of the far rights, actually came together on. The idea that this idea that there's a cliff is kind of insane, that it deters people from wanting to work, wanting to make money, wanting to have opportunity and independence. So, what is the background noise around that right now? Because that's an issue that I've mentioned, we've talked about over the years, when we do our legislative flying, which will be in the late of April. Right now we face a major, major obstacle with the Social Security Trust Fund. And basically what happens is, there are 165 million Americans that pay into Social Security for that 2.6% payroll tax you pay. That money goes in and part of it goes towards what people over 65 get, and then another percentage is allocated towards those with disabilities in SSDI. That allocation needs to be readjusted, or at the end of 2016, what's called the trust fund, which pays for 20% of your money when you get an SSDI check, is going to be depleted. Which means if this isn't done by December, possibly January 2017, if someone's on SSDI, they're gonna get a 20% cut. Now, it's been, a, it's been an issue that, if there are hearings this week, so when you go up to the Hill, you might, you might hear about this. On Wednesday, the Ways and Means Committee is having a hearing, and also the Appropriations Committee uh, for HHS, Health and Human Services, is having another hearing on Thursday. Uh, the Senate had a meeting the other week. What's good is, I think, uh, in the Senate hearing that Senator Enzi led the other week in the Budget Committee in the Senate, is that they have said, we don't want this to happen. But in all things in Washington, there is some politicking going on. There's a thing called HRES 5, which was a resolution which, uh, Chairman Johnson, who oversees the Social Security Committee in the Ways and Means, they want to basically try to make us not kick the can down the road. And I don't, I don't mean us like a Democrat or Republican thing. I simply mean us as people who are pushing to try to make sure that the reallocation happens so we don't see the cut. Because there are real severities that will happen in 2033 as well. So there's a general push uh, within the House of Representatives and within the Senate to try to fix the problem now, that now is an opportunity to fix the larger issues our hope is that when they're talking about fixing these issues, we can also talk about how we can put in those incentives. So then, this week when you're going up on the hill, don't try to be distracted on the issues that you're having if other folks might ask you about these issues. If you know someone on SSDI, if you know someone who gets VR services, the best thing oftentimes we find is just to say, you know, we support these services and we hope that Congress can come together in a bipartisan way to find a solution so that those of us with disabilities aren't impacted. I'm not standing here to ask you to go lobby on these issues, but what I want you to know is that they're part of the background noise, and they're part of the conversation that oftentimes when we go in meetings, we get asked questions that will say, what do you feel about this other issue that another group's talking about? Because we've been sending letters up on the Hill around the trust fund and around you know, other issues as well, all the disability groups inside the Beltway. So those are, in a sense, the main issues that we try to focus on. Again, it's not just 
the issues with procurement that we often deal with at NIV. If anybody caught the uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, Cosmos reboot of Carl Sagan, it, you know, at times you feel like there are billions and billions and billions of issues that we're faced with. Uh, what's important is to stay on your message and to remember that, you know, uh, in, in, I, I like to think what uh, an advocate once said about Martin Luther King. Uh, he said he never, he never once said, I have a complaint. He always said, I have a dream. So tomorrow when you go up, stay positive. Know that there's a lot of energy on other issues going around you, uh, particularly those facing people with employment. But hopefully uh, we can all sort of keep a positive message, and I look very much forward to hearing how meetings go together with folks. I'm very honored to work with Eric and ACB uh, throughout the year as we come together to work on legislative issues as well. And if anyone has any questions, we'd love to have the chance to answer those. So thank you very much. Kevin Lynch and Tony Stevens from National Industries for the Blind were recorded during the ACB Legislative Seminar held in February of this year in Arlington, Virginia. ACB reports pauses to remember the life and work of Charles S.P. Charlie Hodge, who died in June. Professionally, Charlie was an attorney with the U.S. Department of Labor. Within the American Council of the Blind, he served as the organization's first vice president in the early 1990s and later as chairman of the ACB Board of Publications, where he worked to create the Hollis Liggett Affiliate Newsletter Award. Most people who knew Charlie will remember his enthusiasm for and knowledge of the game of hockey and his incredible mind for history, especially the history of the American Council of the Blind. His constant promotion of the ACB Life Member Program will be truly missed. Those of us who knew Charlie Hodge are glad we did. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum Cassette Edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.